Hello, and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Emily Gregg. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our Institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Dr. Grasa Parada, a professor and researcher at the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so Dr. Parada, you bring a unique perspective to WFIRM as you completed your education and residency training in Portugal. We were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this experience. Um, and we also know that you did your PhD in pathology. Um, uh, if you could also maybe talk a little bit on how you decided uh, about that specialty. Okay, so um, I I went to medical school in Europe after high school. We go yeah. directly to medical school, so I went directly to medical school, and um, I thought that I could better help people uh, by going to medical school. So I followed the path of medicine, uh, although I was very keen about other sciences. Um, and after I finished uh, medical school, I wanted to go into um, a fellowship or a, res a residency and then a fellowship that um, would allow me to work in a lab. Um, the school that I went to was a school focused on research. Mm -hmm. um, so we had long hours in labs, although we didn't really perform research, but at least we had the, ba the basic techniques that we would perform in a lab and that yeah. it was always my um, goal when I was a kid it was to do some to do <laughs> research to, to become a scientist mm -hmm. um, so I when I uh, when I apply for a fellowship I I actually my passion would have been pediatrics uh, but I wanted something that I could do in a lab and I, I know hematology uh, we had a lot of because it was hematology and, and, and transfusion medicine that we had long hours in a lab that we could play with tubes um, <laughs> so uh, and so my goal it was doing a, a fellowship in hematology and then maybe uh, focus on pediatrics hemat pediatric hematology um, but when I f was at the end of my fellowship I had the option to do a year of internal medicine mm. or, or to do a research year uh, so I applied uh, for a scholarship and um, I got a scholarship from the Portuguese government to come and do my PhD in US. Mm. Um, Interesting. I, I, I came to the US and uh, so it was through the Portuguese government that they, they and the, 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 the entity that provides funds for uh, PhD students. Mm -hmm. um, so my advisor, uh, I had an advisor at the University in Portugal and an advisor here in US, mm -hmm. and he was the director of the bone marrow transplant unit uh, at UConn Health Center. So I went to his lab uh, to, to do research in bone marrow transplantation since I was a hematologist. It was the field that I wanted to pursue. It was in bone marrow transplant. And oh. at that time it was a novel, not a novel therapy, but it was in Portugal was still, we only had one bone marrow transplant unit. Um, so um, I worked with him and my advisor, uh, so I, I worked in hematology basically throughout my PhD uh, because I focused on, on, mm -hmm. on, on pathologies that hematological patients suffer through uh, when they undergo bone marrow transplant. Um, 
but then because my advisor was in uh, the professor of pathology at my school in Portugal, I my PhD was under his area, so is why Interesting. I got the PhD in pathology, although by clinical training mm -hmm. I'm a hematologist and transfusion mm -hmm. medicine. My PhD is in pathology, but the focus of my research has been always in hematology. That's very interesting, and here at the Institute we know that you have interest in areas like stem cell and hematology, specifically with uh, hemophilia A. Um, so can you talk with us about how you became interested specifically in with hemophilia A and talk a little bit about what your current projects are? So during my fellowship, uh, our department supported all patients with hemophilia A. Uh, so we had around 50-something families uh, that were affected wow. with hemophilia A, hemophilia B, and other yeah. coagulation disorders. Um, and I... I, I it was tough to see all those kids mm -hmm. um, that were, they were going there uh, every week uh, or several times per week to be infused. Mm. Um, and adults as well, but special for me, I think I'm uh, a little bit more soft when I see uh, children. Mm -hmm, uh, so it, it, was, it, it was actually torture for me. Uh, and at, to have to inject them every two weeks and, and then seeing the transition that they wanted to inject themselves and they were so stoic about their disease and treating themselves and um, and I, I thought you know there's to be better ways of um, treating these patients besides just infusing them with factors so uh, we had a very close relationship with patients and this it it was in 1987 um, when I started my fellowship. And uh, you probably are too young to remember that it was when HIV became a problem. Mm -hmm. So uh, many of our patients received products uh, that were HIV contaminated. Wow. So throughout my fellowship, I had we followed these patients that had became HIV positive. And at the time there was nothing that we could do for them, at mm -hmm. least in the beginning. So, and these were, some of them were actually, I had a colleague uh, that was a hemophilia patient. Um, and these were children, adults, it didn't matter. It was just the bad luck. Mm. of having receiving uh, or having received a, a bad uh, product mm -hmm. um, that came from a v very good lab in uh, in Europe mm -hmm. but happens and yeah. so um when i first came to the us and to do my research i i I, I was a little bit disappointed at the topic actually of my project uh because i i wanted to focus uh, more in hemophilia A, but it was something in my mind. Uh, but you know, it was a project that uh, was available and that I developed with my advisor. It mm -hmm. was a wonderful project and mm -hmm. I became very uh, keen about this part of, risk of uh, science as well. But the hemophilia patients were always stayed always in my mind because it made such an impression on me. And, and now we have much better products, much safer products. But I always look at these children um, like uh, they need an adult. They they need a better way of of living. They, they we could do better if 
uh, everyone puts their efforts towards a better way of treating these patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And um, so speaking more about the hemophilia A research, um, where does your work stand in relation to um, stem cell transplantation and uh, gene therapy. You know, we know that some of your research is talking about and working with, hopefully, um, working in utero. Um, mm -hmm. So, just can you talk a little bit more about that? More about that exciting project? Sure. So, um, one of the problems of patients uh, that currently we have therapy for hemophilia, so we we, do, we give infusions of factor eight. Um, but some of these patients can develop inhibitors. That means they will stop responding to therapy. Mm -hmm. So in that case, we have to inf infuse large doses of products or bypass products. Um, so the only way to avoid uh, inhibitors is to create tolerance to the product. Um, the fetus uh, is developing tolerance to all the antigens that are going to be exposed uh, uh, later on, so the proteins, the endogenous proteins. So the best time to create that tolerance is during the prenatal life, uh, a period that uh, the immune system is receptive to external proteins and will become tolerant. Uh, so um, there are studies and our studies and from other groups showing that if we inject cells or proteins in utero, that the, the later on in life they will become tolerant to that protein. So that is our one of our rationales, is especially for hemophilia, is that um, by deliv deliv delivering this protein before birth, mm -hmm. then they will never have that problem of um, developing inhibitors after birth. Mm. Uh, the, other, um, uh, uh, the other main goal of this therapy is um, Fetus are small in size, so we can get a better uh, number of viral particles or cells, depending what which therapy you are proposing to do, uh, per cell in, in within within the recipient. Um, so that doesn't, and besides that, we don't need to have a full compatibility with the with the recipient because, as mm -hmm. I said, we can create tolerance. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, the transplants in utero are performed by uh, receiving cells, or at least the hematopoietic stem cells, what is a little bit different from what we are doing, transplants, we uh, take cells from uh, the mother or the, f the father because then would be haploidentic transplant. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it is less cross-reactivity and that, that patient could, mm -hmm. could or the, the, the fetal recipient would uh, be able to receive those cells without rejecting them. Right. So uh, in the, the case of our cellular therapy, because it's not the hematopoietic stem cell transplant, the cells that we are giving to that patient uh, are uh, not so immunogenic. Uh, so we are hoping that these cells that are um, transduced with, uh, with a, a gene that produces high levels of factor eight can engraft or lodge in, in, in a patient and then these cells, because the fetus is dividing while during fetal life, mm -hmm. these cells will also be uh, cued to mm -hmm. divide as well. So providing the amount, the the needed amount of factor eight in circulation after the, the patient is born. So instead of having a baby that um, is going to have to be uh, 
put in a replacement protein uh, a therapy like we do now for for patients that are born with hemophilia, uh, because this is a, a disease that the, the 65% of the patients know, or the, the mothers know that they are carriers, they can do a prenatal diagnosis, and when this therapy is available, they could be treated, uh, the patients could be treated before they are born. Wow, that sounds like a great future application. Yeah. <laughs> So we also know that your part um, part of your work here at W Firm also includes um, roles as a mentor for the summer scholars and high school students in our educational programs. We're wondering um, how do these mentorship uh, opportunities shape the future, um, and how do they shape your research? Um, we need scientists in the future, right? Science is a great thing, and and I think can promote many good things in a country. A country that has great science uh, is a great country. Uh, so we need to train the next generation of scientists. We need to uh, entice kids uh, to be passionate about science because the life of a scientist is not that easy. Um, and uh, I noticed in your, your descriptions early on the word long hours seem to creep up <laughs> multiple times. Uh, it's it's not just about the long hours. The long hours are the least of, I think, our concern is the, the, the frustration of fighting for funding, uh, is the frustration of um, uh, things not moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, things are not sometimes not very predictable. In biology, two plus two are not four mm -hmm. all the time, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. happens that it's five and then we go back yeah. and, and try to find out what it's five and not four but so um, it, it's about the hurdles that we have to uh, to jump through to be, to be scientists mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be passionate about what you do because if you don't love what you do you're gonna quit and and find a better paying job uh, <laughs> right not a job that you do for love uh -huh. so we have to you know get to these kids that science is the greatest thing of all, and uh, and it's a great way to spend your life. So I, I think mentoring uh, kids in high school and in college, uh, it's as important or more important than mentoring PhD students or postdoctoral fellows, because we are making a difference in these students, we hope, mm -hmm. that they will fall in love with science and they will want to pursue uh, science and the earlier you're exposed to science, uh, I think the better you have a chance of pursuing that career. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, I know not all of the students that come by will uh, fall in love uh, passionately uh, with science, but there, if there's one per year, uh, I, I think it, it, would be, uh, it would be great. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think it's a, a very good, um, Symbiosis. So, you're you are obviously very passionate about science. What do you think for you was that one thing that made you fall in love with science? Was it the ability to potentially help people, or was it a seeming sense of curiosity? Um, what, what, I mean, what, what was that one or two things that made you so passionate about science? I think I like to learn. I like to discover new things. I, I like to wonder. 
uh, I have always I always have a lot of questions mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so being able to answer those questions is the is the most beautiful sensation in the world you know it's like I wonder how this works and then you plan something and you say oh wow that is how it works mm -hmm. uh, I think it's it's beautiful I mean uh, I love to see patients and um, but you know there's a curve of learning and when you end your fellowship so that's it no, I'm all grown up. Now you're gonna. So I think being a scientist is never growing up. Is not in a bad sense. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Is in that sense of wonder mm -hmm. that you always see the world mm -hmm. with the eyes of a three-year-old, basically. Mm -hmm. That everything is a mystery and that you want to unlock all the doors. So mm -hmm. uh, it's always learning something every day and saying gosh I don't have time to learn so much <laughs> sometimes it, that's one of the frustrations when you spend a lot of time um, uh, doing other things besides just science you don't have time to read enough and and come up with uh, new ideas because I mean science is just so cool it's just my goodness it, yeah. it's, it's amazing yeah so well um just to sort of wrap up uh, we have a very diverse listening audience and we were hoping that you could offer some specific advice to our young female scientists that are interested in this field. So do you have any words of wisdom? Um, you talked a little bit about just now managing sort of that work-life balance. And um, so do you have any advice for future female scientists? Never give up is the first thing. Um, create a very thick skin. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, at least for me, I, I cannot speak for all women, but sure. I think we are a little bit more sensitive than, than guys are. Um, I think maybe it's just me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sensitive. But no. uh, so, you know, you really have to just let go and focus on your work and, and create a balance between your family because also uh, if you have kids, you, that umbilical cord is a very strong pull. Uh, so y you have to be happy because otherwise your family is not happy but you have to try to create a balance and I think for every single person it's different mm. um, but I, I the only thing that you have to keep in mind is it's worth it and and your family will thank you for that if you are happy and doing what your dreams are because you you should never quit your dreams I like that it's a great lesson that's a great lesson yeah. well thank you so much yep this is fun that's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.